0: Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's archive episode is going to share my past work on Season 3, Part 6. And after that, I will uh, introduce the uh, story of Part 7 just by sharing the first minute. So there'll be fair warning before that, if you're listening first time through, no spoilers until we get to that point. So you'll have ample time to shut it off if you want, but uh, we do like to tease the next episode at the end of each week of this coverage. From my previous work on this episode, in 2017, the uh, immediate after uh, response on my site, the more I sit with my reaction, reflecting back on the accident scene and its strange effect, the more I think, no, this isn't really funny at all, and it's probably good in an unusual way, yet I can't quite explain that feeling either. Besides the inherent horror of the scene shining through, there was something moving about the potential vulgarity of its presentation. Flat lighting, or what I perceived as such, the aforementioned music, the lingering on a situation which is theoretically pretty hackneyed. What easier way to manipulate an audience than suddenly killing a child who was introduced moments earlier for that very purpose? And yet if it didn't feel quite real, neither did it feel false. It reminded me quite a lot of Roberto Rossellini, in fact, which is odd since the Italian neorealist was so vocally anti-melodramatic, while this scene's style is unabashedly melodramatic. Nonetheless, in both cases there is a rugged, almost childlike approach to the direction, which casts aside concerns about good taste in order to present a situation straight from the heart. Rossellini is a director who has challenged me greatly, but who I've slowly found more rewarding over time. Two more aspects power this scene. Stanton's reaction, totally in sync with the overall mood, but also carrying the weight of time and our familiarity with him, and the touching naivete of the quietly glowing green shape rising from the boy's body, like something out of a medieval fresco. The soul is a very vaguely anthropomorphic abstraction. This past week, I also saw David Lynch: The Art Life, a riveting meditative exploration of both his painted work and his early years. The film is fascinated by the struggle to realize oneself in a perplexing world, one in which the individual barely seems to control his or her fate and is often hampered by well-meaning friends and family. At one point, Lynch remarks that he wasn't miserable in his early married life with bills and responsibilities piling up and his bohemian dream slowly fading. Not exactly miserable, not really, no, but if he hadn't received one particular phone call, providing the opportunity to make a film which would snowball into a decades-long career, well, Lynch tells us over a picture of his sadly smiling 24-year-old self, I don't know what would have happened. Also in 2017, I appeared as a guest on the Obnoxious and Anonymous podcast on YouTube to discuss all of season three up to this point through, through part six. And I think for me, the biggest question going into this new series was how the hell are they going to handle the cliffhanger that they made? Because it, it's, it had to be the center of the story. And I just it boggled my mind. That people would try to say, oh, no, 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 no. Like, that was just a temporary cliffhanger. Like, Lynch and Frost aren't even interested in that. They're going to come back, and they're going to have the first episode. It's going to be like, oh, Cooper defeated evil Cooper. 20 years ago, and now he's like living in twin. Right. It's like, are you serious? Like, that's the whole hook of the story. Come on. That's I think it was wishful thinking for some people because they love you know, you know they just wanted Cooper back in the diner, yeah, with coffee. I understand, like everybody loves that, but you gotta tell a story, and this is a hell of a story, you know. So yeah, well, I mean, you look I, at you look at Kyle's role in this in this new series, and mm-hmm. you can see when he got the script why he immediately oh, yeah. why he immediately <laughs> said yes. I mean, why would you? You wouldn't even. Th- this is the best yeah. role he's probably had since Twin Peaks, yeah. right? And it, oh, and it's definitely yeah. more layered than what. I mean, I thought he was great as as Agent Cooper back then, but yeah. obviously he's got right now three characters he's playing. In 2018, I discussed this episode as part of my discussion on parts five through eight on Twenty Five Years Later. The website with uh, Lindsay Stamhouse. So she asked me, "How do you feel the hit and run scene functions as part of this season?" It was a beautiful moment for Carl Rod, and I answered, The show is very much about death, but usually from a standpoint of illness and aging, so it's startling to see a death so sudden and a victim so young. Lynch usually avoids children altogether in his work. I think if you added up the screen time of every child actor in a Lynch film in the 45 years after The Grandmother, it would be much less than a single episode of The Return. Maybe Lynch felt uncomfortable exposing them to the darkness of his world, so he left them out until now. Indeed, there are several examples of endangered, threatened children in the series. The little boy whom a car bomb nearly destroys, and of course, the hit-and-run victim. The accident is a beautiful moment for Carl because it's such a striking juxtaposition. The old man who has been contemplating his own mortality, confronted with a young child violently ripped from the world. Two different forms of mortality, seemingly derived from completely different worlds, are placed in close proximity. This could be a painting, a woman clutching her dead child in the street screaming in agony, as an old man stands by her side to provide what little comfort he can. I don't know Frost's role in conceiving the scene, but for whatever reason, it feels like a lynch touch to me, with Carl as a kind of narrative surrogate. I can't remember if or where I heard this before, but it might also be his reaction to the horror of the Newtown Massacre, which unfolded as he and Frost began writing the new Twin Peaks. And of course, we see the ascension of that yellow energy past the power lines, Pain and sorrow dissipated into electricity, or something more abstract. And that concludes Season 3, Part 6. And now, on to Part 7. Let's talk about the first minute of what we see and hear there. So first I'm going to play the audio, then I'll describe what we see. Jerry? Jerry? Jerry, what's going on? Someone stole my car! A medium shot. We haven't opened with an image like this yet in The Return, focused squarely on a single character, their environment a background to their evocative expression. In this case, Jerry Horn looks confused. Clad in an open Hawaiian shirt, pink flora against a blue background, A gray t-shirt underneath and tan backpack straps over his shoulders. He also wears a multicolored beanie, knit green, purplish maroon, red and blue bands, and stands against the spinely branches, green ferns, assorted trunks, and clumps of rolling forest floor of the woods. His white beard, long but trimmed, might give him a distinguished look, if not for the focused yet fleeting gaze of perplexity in his eyes, staring at nothing intently. Ten seconds in, our first cut. As if to confirm this impression, shows a nondescript wooded landscape as an implicit point of view reverse shot ferns in the foreground, tangled branches and twigs crisscrossing the view of trunks, foliage, and brush stretching into whatever distance is not obscured by all these trees. After three seconds, we return to Jerry's medium shot. He is no less satisfied with what he sees than he was before, or rather, no more satisfied. He continues to breathe dramatically and appears to focus in on something. Cutting again after another three seconds, the forest shot is anchored this time by three large trunks of old mossy trees, one on the far right of the frame, one just to the left of the center, and another, the largest, with a root stretching from the right and another overlapping with the middle tree. We pan, in a manner similar to a head, quickly turning. From this, back to the other view of the forest in the previous reverse cut. Now 21 seconds in, back to the shot of Jerry, who seems no less sure of himself as his eyes shift back and forth. Cut back to a slower pan, Back to the area dominated by three trees, panning a little further to the right this time. And now back to the shot of Jerry. No answers here. Gazing cautiously to his right, then flicking his eyes to the left and back to right in front of him. Breathing heavily, he finally raises a cell phone to his chest, revealing that his gray t-shirt is actually a sweatshirt poking out from his short-sleeved Hawaiian top. His hands are clad in red wool gloves with a dark blue jagged line across the knuckles and wrist, and some lighter blue shapes. Perhaps animals? in between. He presses something on the screen with his left pointer, and then deliberately, blinking, raises the silver, uncased smartphone into the proximity, though not right up to, his right ear. 45 seconds into the scene, we cut to another location, the great northern office of Ben Horn, clad in a dark gray, subtly striped suit, wearing a white shirt with thin horizontal stripes across the collar and vertical stripes down the chest, a tie of gold and red bands. Wearing glasses, one hand stretched out on the table, facing a sleek black landline phone display, but looking just a little to its right and wearing an expression of beleaguered concern, Ben tries to talk to his brother. He raises his head and his eyes shift back and forth, anticipating a response, before turning his head again as if to make sure he hears whatever is said. Behind him is the paneled, black-and-red mural, the Native American art, that adorns the great northern office. And he is sitting in a chair of perhaps leather, brown material, with a beaded uh, top across it. There are papers on his desk, a dispenser of tape. When he repeats his brother's name, he leans in and shifts his eyes side to side once again, mouth slightly agape. After the third incantation, we cut back to Jerry. In the same pose staring straight ahead as he finally responds our minute ends that's it for this episode please rate review and subscribe on apple podcasts you can support this work on patreon.com slash lost in the movies see you tomorrow for part seven